Coming up on the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast, Mayor Fred gives us an update on LRT. Could the new variants slow down Ontario's reopening? What the heck is happening with the Green Party, and are they ready for prime time? It's coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Disneyland in Paris is reopening after COVID-19. Well, sure it is. Wasn't the vaccine first tested on Mickey and his mouse friends? He's clearly immune. It's the Scott Thompson Home Show here. Scott Thompson! Seems a little insensitive, doesn't it? All right, big news earlier this week. The city's uh, general issues committee uh, voted 9-6 to six on Wednesday to negotiate a memorandum of understanding with Metrolinx regarding the 14K LRT line from Mac to Eastgate Square. City Council must still ratify uh, the CIG's decision next Wednesday, and then another vote will eventually be needed to approve uh, the memorandum of understanding once uh, it all has been negotiated and presented to council. To talk more about all of this, Mayor Fred Eisenberger, City of Hamilton, he is with us now. Mayor, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, doing uh, very well, thank you. Uh, so uh, here we go. Another another step. Another uh, you know another baby step towards uh, seeing this actually come to fruition. Your thoughts on this vote of nine to six on Wednesday? Uh, how more confident are you now? This is all going to continue. Well, very much more. And uh, you know what? Con- considering the uh, the amount of money that's on the table, and I think the timing in terms of the economic stimulus that this will provide, uh, I think the, uh, the 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 nine votes that came forward yesterday are solid votes, and I, I'm I'm confident they're going to be there when the uh, the issue come back comes back to us. When, and you know, the memorandum of understanding will not be appreciably different than the one that we previously signed uh, with uh, for the previous project that. Uh, was in the middle of procurement. So we've already been down this road. We know what the expectations are, and the province has already confirmed uh, by virtue of their, uh, their, their visit uh, a couple of weeks ago that their, uh, their commitment is that they will, they will look after the life cycle costs of this project. They will look after the capital costs of this project. They will look after any additional expenditures if there's any overages of this project. And the expectation for the city of Hamilton is that it deals with the operating and maintenance agreement. And so in that light, we had a good conversation around that, and we actually demonstrated that uh, the $20 million gross number that the province has identified as the operating and maintenance uh, agreement cost has been whittled down to virtually zero by virtue of uh, pair box revenue coming in, by virtue of the uh, reduced uh, development charge exemptions that we're going to uh, put in place and as well as eliminating some of the incentives that are there and, and eliminating some of the surplus buses that no longer need to run there that will, will allow a reduction in terms of overall expenditures. So by the end of it all, it actually came down to zero. And so it is not going to cost the taxpayers. In fact, when we add in the, uh, the economic uplift, the additional tax revenues that this will generate, which has been largely, the, the, this has been a transit and economic uplift project, the, uh, the generation of taxes is going to be significant, and you know we, evidence of that can be uh, seen in Kitchener Waterloo, where they've generated from two and a half billion to three billion dollars of new assessment that translates into many millions of dollars of new taxes coming into their community, as well as that renewal of commercial and residential additional space all the way along the corridor. So it's uh, it's a good time to uh, to 
to build uh, an LRT. It's a good time to have economic stimulus come to this community, 7,000 jobs. It's also a good time to electrify our system and deal with the climate change issue. So when you put all that together, this is nothing but a win-win-win, and I'm delighted that the federal and provincial governments are standing behind this. And I have no doubt at the end of the day we're going to, we're going to sign on this MOU, and hopefully, as Councillor Clark indicated, even though he's opposed, that once we uh, finalize the MOU, he's going to be behind making it as good as it can be. Uh, I was just actually about to bring out what uh, bring up what Councillor Clark had said, and and gave you kudos for for your advocacy of this project all the way along, even though obviously uh, you know he voted otherwise. Uh, that being said, um, the operate when this whole thing started, it was about well we don't want to pay for it, so that box was checked off. Well, well we don't want to pay to run it, so we've neutralized that now. Is there mm-hmm. another box further down here that we still have to check off? before the resistance settles down? <laughs> no. Uh, again, uh, you know, trying to explain the unexplainable here in terms of why some are still opposed to receiving this kind of benefit that every other community in the country would be salivating over is, is hard to explain. I'm not going to try to explain it. Uh, the folks that are opposed to this uh, on council are going to have to explain it themselves. Uh, this, the reality is that this kind of investment uh, happens once in a generation. We've had a good couple of weeks. Uh, not only did we do the downtown precinct uh, you know, uh, redevelopment uh, agreement with a consortium downtown that's going to save our, the Hamilton taxpayers about $155 million over 30 years, about a $5 million a year uh, reduction in terms of uh, tax load, and they're going to make investments in the facilities. If you add that, if you add LRT into the mix, all of that inter- intertwined development is so interrelated. Uh, all of the, all of that has actually been happening as a result of the promise of LRT, and so the reality of LRT will be even different, and we're going to see a lot more renewal and development as a result of that. So, why anyone would want to chase this out of the city of Hamilton and watch it go to Toronto or London or Ottawa or Kitchener Waterloo? where we're still going to pay for it uh, through our federal and provincial taxes uh, is, is a wonder to me. I, I, I cannot rationalize it. I do not understand it. I don't know what the fear is other than people don't want change. And that, that's, a, that's a common refrain, I think, that people worry yeah. about. And so change, change is going to bring uh, you know, a positive uh, new outlook for our city. We're building the city of the future here for the next generation. Uh, for uh, for the old timers that are here, we're not going to be doing harm. Uh, will it change traffic patterns in the city? Yes, it will, but for the better. And so there'll be more mobility, there'll be more investment, uh, the more of the kinds of things that people want to see their city to be, which is a dynamic, interactive, uh, opportunity-filled city that uh, will allow them to talk to their grandchildren and say, you know what, you can stay in Hamilton because there's going to be, a, you know, unlimited opportunity in terms of employment, jobs, and, uh, and housing, and all of those things that uh, we all want to have a good quality of life. This just uh, counselor. So- Councillor Clark was saying that uh, he didn't think, and I, I think many agreed with him, didn't think that you would get all of these different levels of government coming together on this issue. You wouldn't get the feds involved with the province and mm-hmm. so on. And that's exactly what happened. How monumental is this uh, Is this collaboration? And do you think this is going to be used in other cities? 
Well, it, it already has been, and you know, and yeah. if you look at uh, if you look at Kitchener Waterloo, that was a, a three way partnership. In fact, that the, the the city of Kitchener Waterloo put a third of the cost of their LRT into the mix, and the other thirds came from the federal and provincial governments. Ottawa, the same. Ottawa has been you know investing mightily in their light rail transit system. They're now looking at line number three. Uh, and the taxpayers in the city of Ottawa have put one-third of the cost and have taken on the operating and maintenance cost there as well. Toronto uh, just now getting a $10 billion investment in new subway and, and, and LRT extensions. Uh, they're, uh, they're also making contributions as part of their capital contribution to the project. Hamilton is an outlier in all of this. We're, we're, and then I, I, I want to say this softly because I don't want other municipalities come, come raining down on us, and I don't want... Mm-hmm the federal provincial governments to change their mind. But this is the only project I can think of in the country that is getting 100% capital and life cycle costs taken care of by two levels of government with no requirement from the city of Hamilton taxpayers to put capital dollars into the project. So please don't tell anybody else that this is a, uh, <laughs> this is a gift to the city of Hamilton. Uh, they might change their mind and say, you know, that's not fair. We should be doing this everywhere. And then the pressure's on both the federal and provincial government to make that standard uh, in other communities. And uh, that so far, that hasn't been met. And so I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled and delighted. And it's a recognition, uh, to be honest, that, uh, that Hamilton has had, over the years, a rough go. Yeah. Uh, we have lost enormous amount of industry. We've lost an enormous amount of jobs. Uh, that we're still working to replace. Slowly but surely, we're chipping away at that. But if you think about that industrial corridor and the amount of jobs that were there with International Harvester and Stelco, DeFasco, Procter & Gamble, Firestone, I mean, the list goes on and on of all the industry that used to be there. Uh, the remaining one is essentially Arsenal, DeFasco, and, and Stelco. Uh, the rest of them have all gone elsewhere, and all the jobs have gone with it. And so, this is really a recognition of that challenging, difficult time and an opportunity to not burden the, the taxpayers with, uh, with the, this, these additional costs. At the same time, say, we, you're worthy of this investment. We, we think this is going to stimulate your economy. We know it's going to stimulate your economy. And therefore, we think this is worthwhile for both the federal and provincial governments to step into to really give Hamilton a boost in the direction that uh, will help invigorate new jobs and new opportunities going forward yeah you don't want to say hamilton deserves this but yeah we do and uh we're certainly ready for this now that, that that's certainly uh the case um now let me let me let me say scott you know I, we have to be grateful to uh Catherine mckenna former hamiltonian her heart certainly has been in hamilton i talked to her you know a number of years ago about the potential of being a partner in uh, lrt if we needed more more resources and uh she came through for us in spades. Uh, you know what? Uh, having that Hamilton connection certainly didn't hurt. And I, I know I do want to give kudos to the premier and uh, Minister Mulroney, who uh, you know at, at a given point in time had canceled the project and then decided, uh, you know, given new information and additional uh, dialogue, that uh, they may have erred in canceling this thing too soon, and uh, found a way of coming back to the fold and actually putting even more dollars on the table to help make this project happen. So, you know, a lot of people uh, put a lot of uh, elbow grease into this. Uh, I'm I'm certainly delighted with all of the effort that was put in by all the advocates out here in the city of Hamilton that have been working with our federal and provincial partners. And uh, I am delighted that uh, this partnership has finally come together. And certainly we ought to seize the day 
and uh, take the momentum from this and continue to build our city in a way that uh, makes sense. And you know what? It, it, it really encourages, for those that are, are worried about urban sprawl, uh, this really encourages the kind of growth and development that we need that will curb urban sprawl. And so very important key issue from that perspective as well. All right. All right, this is about uh, renegotiating and, or sorry, um, uh, 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 redoing, I guess, the memo of understanding and and making sure that that gets to uh, the next level and such. You've been through this dance before. Explain to everybody what comes out the other end of the memo of understanding. Uh, it's basically uh, an agreement as to who's responsible for what. So it'll, it'll spell out exactly what the province of uh, Ontario will will commit to, and uh, as I've just pointed out they, uh, in their presentation a couple of weeks ago, they committed to the capital cost, they committed to the life cycle cost, uh, life cycle and maintenance cost. All the, uh, all the infrastructure work and design work will be covered uh, through the project costs, so there's no additional capital cost for the City of Hamilton, and we will then identify that we will be uh, responsible for the operating costs. And so it just formalizes the agreement so that everyone knows what, the, what responsibility they have. The uh, federal government is a funding partner, but that's certainly not a construction partner in all of this. And then we'll commit to working with the provincial government and Metrolinx on, on making this happen. So to Councillor Clark's point, if we, uh, if we sign on to this MOU, which we've done in the past, and then spend all of our time trying to undermine the project, that, that, that is really operating in bad faith and, uh, you know, doing the kinds of things that got us to, uh, you know, getting this project canceled in the first place. So I, I really appreciate Councillor Clark's commitment, and I hope others will make the same, that once we've decided, which we should do in all cases, that once Council decides we should get behind the project and ensure that it, it, it works and that we do everything possible to make it successful not do everything possible to undermine and upset the uh, the apple cart. So I'm, so the, I'm hopeful that's the position that, we'll, that council by and large will take, and the, the MOU will actually spell out who's responsible for what. So there's no reason to believe that after all of this comes back with the MOU that uh, this will not pass. It will just continue on then. Uh, I would say the nine votes that we have are solid. I would hope that we could get more people on board that could say, uh, you know, this is the right thing for the city of Hamilton to do. Uh, so far, that hasn't happened for the other six, but I remain hopeful. But if not, uh, nine votes carries the day, and we will marshal on. And, and, and again, I hope that other members of council will again adopt the same attitude as Councillor Clark, that once council's decided we've made our final, final uh, sign-off on the MOU, that everybody gets behind us to make this work. Okay, one more question, Mayor. After the MOU is finalized, you have your vote, uh, you know, uh, and yep. just uh, assuming all that moves forward, what happens after that? Timeline, roughly? Procurement, yeah, they'll restart the procurement process. Uh, you know, obviously it was it was in the middle of a procurement process uh, the, when it was canceled. Uh, I, I know the consortiums are still out there ready to sharpen their pencils. Once they see the commitment is uh, is there, the province will kickstart the uh, the procurement process. They have a number of phases that they laid out in terms of underground construction work, uh, the above ground work, the, the inline work. So there'll be a number of contracts that'll be bid on, and then uh, the bidding will be finalized. And uh, hopefully, the shovels w- will be in the ground in I, I would imagine sometime in middle to late 2022. So we're almost where to we're almost to where we once were. <laughs> yes, we were back to. 
We're in the middle of a, I mean, the procurement, again, was halfway through its process. So we've yeah. got a number of consortiums out there that have already put time and attention into their bid. So I would say that they'll, they'll likely just restart the bidding process, let them follow through on it, uh, get them completed, uh, get them uh, uh, approved. And, and this is now a, ultimately a provincial Metrolinx project. So all of that construction and bidding approval process lies with them. Uh, we will we will continue to work in partnership with them by, by setting up a, uh, a joint office, which we had previously, which was at the Go Center here downtown on Hunter Street. Uh, half the staff uh, were city staff. The other half were, were Metrolink staff. All of it paid for, for through the project cost to ensure that we integrate all the work that needs to be done to get this project happen. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's go to a COVID-19 update and bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, uh, epidemiologist and professor school of population and public health, Ryerson University, Ontario easing into its reopening, but we are seeing, oh, must be a delivery. We are seeing a a spike in COVID-19 cases in the Waterloo region, and it is being driven by the Delta variant, which is quickly becoming the prominent strain uh, in uh, the community. Is Waterloo a red flag for the rest of the province? How does this change our reopening moving forward? Let's bring in Tim Sly, epidemiologist, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and is with us now. Doctor, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, Scott. Good morning. Uh, good morning to you, Tim. It's, uh, boy, or I guess good afternoon now. It, it's one of those situations where, it, you know, gee, we don't know whether to celebrate or, or stay hunkered down. Uh, obviously, we're seeing great strides with va- vaccination. Uh, I think uh, Ontario, uh, almost to its 12 millionth uh, citizen vaccinated uh, at this point, and, and, and things are slowly starting to reopen, but we're, we're hearing more about uh the this pesky delta variance which is seems to have uh, uh made an impact on waterloo what are your thoughts as we try to balance all of this well scott i don't want to make light of it but it's almost like uh, any good suspense movie or story you know the end is virtually in sight and then suddenly you know you get this this cloud of doubt or this, uh, this twist at the end of the story that brings your heart uh, fluttering a bit more yeah, we've been following the UK at about a three to five weeks delay here in Canada all the way through the pandemic from the very beginning. So by seeing what's going on over there, we get a, a pretty good idea of what's going to be like here in a month or two. And what's happening there is, remember, they had vaccination rates that were much, much higher than us. And talking, talking about fully vaccinated, much higher than us. So that's an advantage to them. But uh, something like 10 days ago, uh, their their, their, uh, Delta variant had gone from zero uh, count up to about 75% of the isolations in about 60 days. In other words, two months had gone from zero up to three quarters of all the variants they tested turned out to be the Delta one. And if we follow that, then we're in for a bit of a surge coming down. We hate to say this on your show, but we, we're looking for something like a midsummer surge. Let's hope it doesn't happen. Fingers crossed. But we can expect uh, this thing to increase. Uh, about a week ago, I did a quick measure, and it seems we are about between 19 and 23 percent of the isolations were this new variant. What it is today, I haven't checked, but if it keeps going up at that rate, we could see uh, more than 50% is this variant. And this particular variant, the Delta one, is, uh, has a higher hospitalization rate, 
and it seems to be affecting the youngsters, the 20-year-olds. Now, it could be an artifact of the fact that they're the last to become vaccinated, yeah. so they were just simply more vulnerable to it anyway, but we can't ignore that fact. Uh, you are comparing uh, to the U.K., um, obviously, as you mentioned, the UK and the United States took off like gangbusters when the vaccination first started. Then things have sort, uh, you know, uh, slowly uh, leveled off a bit, I guess, especially in the United States. I'm not sure what the vaccine rate is in the UK right now, but obviously Canada uh, having a short supply and now that picking up. Uh, I don't know whether it's supply and demand or we just like to follow rules, but now we're seeing 75, almost 75 percent of Canadians, certainly Ontarians, have have had their uh, first shot. Does that put us in a different place with these variants compared to a UK who may not have as many people with that first shot, although may have more with a second? Yeah, I think if if the Delta hadn't come along, you and I would be dancing in the streets. So it's 75% yeah. with at least one, because at least one shot gives you the vast majority of the protection you're, that you're going to get. And we probably wouldn't have seen the last wave, quite honestly, if the variants hadn't appeared. Uh, but however, this latest variant, the Delta one, uh, it is uh, remarkably able to avoid uh, a fair amount of the vaccine. So we're looking at about 33% effective, all the vaccines, uh, against uh, this new variant. We need the second shot now for this one to boost it back up to what it should be, which should be between about in the 60s up to uh, approaching 90%, something like that. So this is why the urgency now to get that second shot into everybody. That's uh, The picture's changed a bit, yep. So what about what we're seeing in Waterloo, who I guess now are leading the province uh in in the new variant uh in the new delta strain of this uh how concerned are you does any sort of uh special precaution need to be taken they're they're even saying you know it could lead could to a slowing down of reopening there oh yeah it could do it in fact britain has put on on delay the opening that they were really eager for down to the pub ordering pints and that and parties and back slapping and so on but They've put that on to delay for a couple of weeks in many areas that uh, we've yeah. seen the Delta appear. And, and it's, it's not the Delta virus vaccine has got any, uh, sorry, variant has got any particular evil uh, agenda. It's just able to spread more rapidly. And given the population, that's what exactly what it will do. So where it appears, stand back because we, we would see an increase in that particular one flooding the Now, clearly, you said, what should we do? Well, I could say more of the same but that really means underlining more i mean let's where it's where it's appearing we certainly need to sort of make sure that those masks are in place it's the whole stuff again you and i've been saying this for what a year and a half now almost uh distancing is don't 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 let up your guard on this because this thing can get in there and cause a real problem uh, obviously, we're seeing numbers uh, trending in the right direction. It's been a very, uh, very optimistic week in that response. Also, a report today, more Moderna, a million more Moderna shots coming in. Uh, that from the United States, uh, oddly enough. Um, but, but obviously, when, that, when we hear that good news, it's well, then reopen. Well, then reopen. Um, Mayor John Tory has said that we need to stick to the plan. Uh, he's not in favor of speeding this up in any way and, and still stress that we need more supply. He needs more supply in order to mass vaccinate and have these clinics without huge lineups. 
uh, and such. So your thoughts on reopening? Should we slow this down? Should we speed this up? Uh, uh, outdoor stuff, uh, I think we, sh- we can increase that because the, the evidence is now showing that outdoors, uh, there's not a lot of transmission has been going on, even from the beginning. I mean, you know, face-to-face or group hugs and stuff, they, that's not really a good idea even now. But otherwise, let's get outside and look at, look at the day-to-day, for example. Indoors, let's hold off a bit. Wait until the vaccines have, have shot up. Remember, we're about 11, 11 point something percent fully vaccinated, and that's where we should be. UK, UK is way over 50 percent uh, about, uh, about 10 days ago, so they're probably much higher than that at the moment. They're much better protected than we are, and they're, they're hesitating. They're pulling back on their fully opening status simply because look at the psychological impact of everybody getting back to normal, yeah. and then suddenly uh, somebody's blowing a whistle saying, oops, okay, back inside, we were too early, you know, and closing back down again. We don't want to see that. All the indicators are going in the right direction at the moment, except for the, for the shadow of the variant. Let's not endanger all that great work that Ontario has done in, in bringing it as low as we are. The, R, the, R, the effective R factor is way down. The positivity rate is now about two. I think that today I looked. Uh, the vaccination rate is higher than I would have thought it was about a, a seven seven months ago. Uh, it's it's all moving in the right direction. So let's let's stay the course and uh, make sure we finish this little job and see see right to the end now. Any idea why all of a sudden, like a place like Waterloo would pop up as being a hot spot for a variant? Well, it's uh, it's not really, but people do move around in this province yeah. a lot. They do fly about, and of course, there's airports beginning to uh, move on. I sit right underneath uh, uh, runway 33 right as the planes come over, mm. and uh, and I know that the traffic is increasing enormously uh, just in the last few days. So people are traveling; they're coming in from other countries, they're moving around across borders and states and so on. So you, you expect that to happen. Uh, people in Canada don't just sit at home, you know. We we get out and do things. So why why Waterloo? Who knows? It could have been Brampton. It could have been Oshawa. It could have been almost anywhere. But uh, we're seeing little spots. So they Britain had a sudden increase in Bolton, Barrie, and I think it was Blackburn, three cities. Suddenly, the downwards curve started to go up again. A surge in those three places, and it was all places where the Delta was was highly prevalent, and all places involving. 20-year-olds. Uh, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, uh, the situations we're seeing is, uh, you know, as everybody's, you know, now, uh, you know, if we're, say, 70, 75% with the first dose, uh, now everybody trying to get the second, but there's still uh, 25% at least that don't have the first dose, and they're saying that, uh, from what I've read uh, this morning, that uh, with the situation in Waterloo, it, it ended up being people who had not, uh, still had not yet been vaccinated with even the first shot. Yeah, Bonnie Henry, if you recall, about, uh, what, two weeks ago, was it? I think she said that they'd done an analysis of the first quarter in B.C., and it turned out that 98% of the cases that were diagnosed had had no vaccination at all. 1.7% only of the cases had had one vaccine shot, and 0.2%, right, two in a thousand, uh, of the diagnosed cases had had both. I mean, there's clear evidence that the vaccine really does work and at the same time i'm reading i think it was yesterday uh medical workers health care workers rather in the long-term care homes and so on saying well you can't make us be vaccinated 
I mean, mm. how, how yeah. does that fit? I, I don't see yeah. the, the mental approach from that at all. Uh, interesting story coming out of the United States in, in again around AstraZeneca. Uh, and someone sent me a note because uh, things are starting to open up in New York and they're starting to get into travel and, and Broadway and all of that stuff. So they were talking about uh, Bruce Springsteen's show on Broadway. And in order to get into the show, and I'm sure it's the same with all of them, or, you know, I mean, I'm sure there's a, a, you know, a universal policy here that you had to have two shots of a U.S. approved vaccine. And since AstraZeneca is not approved in the United States yet, that doesn't count. So people who have AstraZeneca shots theoretically aren't allowed to go and see these shows. That's a small part of this. The larger uh, point in all of this is what does that mean for travel, uh, especially when we're talking about vaccine passports and such? I mean, we, you know, we, we're talking about having a passport in order to display that we're all vaccinated. But what if you've been vaccinated with a vaccine that hasn't been approved in that specific country? I think you're asking exactly the question that should be asked, uh, Scott. Yeah, that's a kind of an administrative foul up, you know. I mean, the, the vaccines, uh, the viruses don't really stop at borders and change their characteristics. So whether one country decides to approve a vaccine and the, and the one next door doesn't, I mean, people shouldn't really be caught up in that kind of, kind of silliness. You know, let, let's, let, let the experts get together and decide whether the vaccine does or doesn't work, regardless of whether the, the country's approved it or not, and then let uh, things happen like that. Yeah, that's a good, good question. Let, let's hope we get a res- resolution for that kind of stuff soon. Uh, and uh, here, this is just breaking news now. Uh, and, of course, the news conference is coming up at uh, 1 o'clock. We will cover that live with Health Minister Christine Elliott, that now Ontario is set to uh, update its COVID-19 vaccination plan and will take uh, more effort into hotspot areas, which I guess is exactly what you were just saying. Exactly. And there are vaccines which are used in other parts of the world that we, we haven't approved here in Canada. So the same story may appear as well. Uh, that does this particular vaccine is used in Europe, for example, and made in Germany, has not been approved in Canada, would we pr- prohibit a person coming into this country or put them into a severe lockdown or, you know, isolation? Yeah. Same, same story. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. What the federal Green Party is going through right now is what every single political party goes through at one time or another, dealing with every fragment of any party, especially the extremes that exist within all of them. Although it's usually dealt with behind the closed door of party politics. What is going on in Greenland? Well, a lot of infighting and threats to oust the leader. As everybody knows, the Green Party's origins are steep within the extreme environmental movement. They have had an impact on party politics over the years, which is why now every single major political party has a climate plan of some sort. But the Green Party has had a hard time defining itself as a credible political party, or simply just another extreme environmental movement. What we are seeing now is a party trying to decide what the rest of its platform will be from a group whose only real common denominator is environmental issues. There is a lot more to politics and world reality than the environment, and the global pandemic has proven that. The Green Party has a tremendous amount of work to do before anyone takes them seriously. I'm Scott Thompson. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, every party has its squabbles, especially with the extremists that are in every party, always pulling uh, one direction or the other, and and that's what you know political uh, parties are all about. And then once the agenda is set, we all fall in line. Apparently, uh, the uh, it seems the Green Party is going through this now. Why is Anna, uh, Anime uh, Paul's uh, leadership in question at this point? Well, before I get into that, let's just separate the Greens a little bit from the New Democrats, the Conservatives, and the Liberals. It is in name, they are a party, certainly in different parts of the country. They have demonstrated political success, BEI, New Brunswick, um, BC, places where they've played key roles. The National Party, Scott, seems to be a collect- more of a collection of activists without the same structures yet that um that the other three parties i just mentioned have so it can be more subject to the the whims of the activists the upset the ups and downs of all of it and when elizabeth may was the leader you'll remember largely the green party nationally benefited from her personality and the perception people had of her uh, in, in the, in the broad, uh, in the broad electorate, though they were never able to get beyond three seats. So Anime Paul has inherited this organization that is not really an organization, is very chaotic, and is very susceptible to squabbles like the one that apparently broken out, damaging their brand. So as we sit here today on the 17th of, of June, Anime Paul is leading a party that apparently a good portion of its leadership doesn't want her to lead, and she's pushing back uh, fairly aggressively against them, then also taking shots at, at Justin Trudeau. So if we're to believe that there's going to be an election sometime in called sometime in August for September or early October, that's not a great place to be because you as a party or an organization or whatever you want to call the Greens want to project yourself as uh, able and capable and that people often judge how you manage your own affairs. And by the if judging were being done today, the Greens wouldn't score very well. You bring up a very valid point here uh, in, in the party. One point out of that, Jeez, <laughs> come on. Like, there's all kinds of wisdom in yeah. that today. I'm buddy. a singular think. I'm a singular okay. thinker, man. If I do with any more with, uh, with one point at a time, I just lose my place. Um, uh, you, you said that you, you talked about the environment, uh, environmental movement of this party. Has it yet to define itself? What it is beyond that? Is it an environmental movement? an organized environmental movement, or is it a political party? And I take this back, you know, even several years. The Green Party's been around for a long time, and as you mentioned, provincially and federally, it's a whole different uh, ball game. and especially if you go to other nations, it's completely mm-hmm. different. Germany but here's there. a party, here's a party that's been a, you know, a one-trick party. It's been a one-policy party, that being the environment. Now, over time, we've seen every single political party, major one now, have some sort of climate plan. So, in a sense, the Greens have become obsolete in the sense that it's the only issue they have. And the problems that they're having now is trying to define what the party stands for on every other issue that a political party has to deal with. And the environment, albeit a big issue, uh, the global pandemic has told us these other things need to be addressed, whether it's foreign policy, whether it's economics, whether it's health care. I mean, there's a lot more to leading a country than than by the environment. And now it appears they're trying to figure out what the rest of that is. And that's what they're having difficulty with, because the only common denominator they all have 
is the environment. Is that accurate? Um, partially. Um, I, I think you're right. Let me I think I'll try two thoughts. You, you were grappling one. Let me try two. Um, yes, I think based on what I have seen with Anna Paul, she's trying to add more legs to the stool of what the Green Party is. And um, that, that's an important thing to do. Second point I would make, and there, there may be some difficulty with that. I think Elizabeth May did try to do that. But Elizabeth may probably, because she, you know, had been one of the first uh, green uh, federal Green MPs elected and had performed well uh, over the course of her tenure, at least in getting a, 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 a significant amount of media attention that somebody else in her position wouldn't get, had a lot more latitude. So not only is Anna Paul trying to bring structure potentially to the party, but she's also coming out of the shadow of Elizabeth May, who people, they may not have voted green, but I think they gave Elizabeth the benefit of the doubt as the conscience of Parliament. Um, that yes, on the environment, but she also was a big proponent of parliamentary reform uh, because she saw the benefits that could produce for the Green Party. Look, when you've had a leader of an organization, uh, Elizabeth led that party for over a decade and then they've had, they had an interim leader, and now they have uh, Miss Paul in there. That's just going to be tough anyway. And don't forget, too, Scott. Now, just before the last election campaign, you'll remember the Greens were par- well, a lot of votes were being parked in the Greens. They had high numbers. They performed well. Yeah, it was huge. And then then all of that dissipated. I mean, the Greens have had internal struggles before. They're usually pretty big, but they. They um, they tend to have these identity crises. I mean, the worrisome thing, I guess, for the Greens who purport to be, or at least to the public, look like to be a party of equality and equity and inclusion is if there's any truth to what Anna Mae Paul is saying about the racism she believes she's been subject to and all of that. I mean, that could be a brand killer for for the, the Green Party. Uh, your thoughts on her reaction with that and, 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 and talking about uh, sexism, racism, and such? Well, I don't see the value in attacking Justin Trudeau. That's, and, and to be fair, that's a standard tactic, so maybe she's adopting standard tactics. When you usually lose an MP from any party, you find a way not, to be, not for it to be about your leadership. So you go after somebody else as a distraction. So going after Trudeau and his feminist credentials, and you and I have talked about that on this show often yeah. before, is, is, is terrain that's about not focusing on the issue, though the, the subject may be meritous. It discredits um, Jenna Atuan, Atwick, sorry, uh, who left and went from the Greens to the Liberal Party. I just don't know if it's true or not true. I'm sure she is encountering resistance um, internally from people who were probably Elizabeth's people. Again, that's pretty normal in any organization when somebody's been the head and a new person comes in and they don't have uh, a whole new staff. They can, they can meet internal resistance, but I have no knowledge and no ability to communicate on the legitimacy of her comments. Um, what she does do when she makes them is she does put people in a box, though, that if you criticize her, she's creating a sense, and it, again, it may be legitimate, where, whereby you're questioning, is that criticism race-based or not? So 
I think you just have to be mindful of that when you listen to her speak, uh, because we we don't have a body of information one way or the other to lead credence to uh, the 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 proof of her uh, of her statements. You're talking about the Green MP that crossed the floor over to the Liberals. Does that does that uh, does that help the Liberals? Is that good for the Liberals, or does this just drag them into this mess? Ah, I think they're laughing all the way to Fredericton, uh, yeah. where that MP is from. Um, look, the sometimes I think if I remember correctly, and it's been the pattern in the past, the, the Greens can eat support from all parties, but they can tend to eat more from, you know, from from Liberals and uh, and uh, and the NDP. So if the Greens are fighting with themselves and the Liberals can continue to suggest to a certain amount of the audience that they're the, you know, if you want something done on climate change, we're, we're the party to back with and there's Green voters who that's their main issue, probably benefits them. Um, so a little bit of cha- a little bit of chaos elsewhere uh, could also benefit the NDP. Uh, Mr. Singh, we put out an abacus poll today, has seen a rise in, in, in his numbers. Yeah, yeah. Um, How do you explain I mean, that? It's too early, too early to, you know, to track this. It's just to be fair, because this only happened a couple of days ago, but um, maybe Singh benefits from this. So is this uh, does this go back to the argument of not ready for prime time, not able to compete with the top three? And and what can the federal party learn from the provinces? I remember talking to the Ontario uh, Green leader, and I think this is when Premier Wynne was still in power and uh, probably just prior to the last uh, provincial election. And, um, you know, people in Ontario were, were kind of fed up with the Liberals at that point. And uh, I remember talking to, to the Ontario leader, Mike Schreiner, I believe, and, and yeah. I said, well, where does the party fall? Because, you know, here we have, you know, a, a left-leaning Liberal party, then there's the NDP on the left, and then there's the Greens. And he was quick to, to correct me and say that, you know, uh, the Green doesn't necessarily mean you're left of these parties. He pointed to an example, the example in Germany as such. But, but again, you, you seem to have one solid policy, which is the environment, then anything after that, it's up in the air. And I don't think Canadians have grasped what this party stands for, if it stands for anything other than, than the environment. And, and again, that's, that's a great concern to Canadians, but boy, it's a big world out there. Yeah, well, I, I can point, I guess, to the not, not I guess I know to the, the Greens and PEI who've done well over two elections. Uh, in fact, our opposition in uh, in PEI and in the last election campaign, if I remember correctly, or maybe it was the one before. It doesn't matter which one at the moment. The point is still the same that they brought out a platform that was. I would say measured when it came to all aspects of the issues Prince Edward Islanders were looking at. So it wasn't just about the environment as the overall encompassing issue. It was about employment. It was about the fishery, which is obviously connected to the environment. It's connected to agriculture, all key things in Prince Edward Island. And I think that, you know, that connected pragmatic approach uh, along with their leader um, help them there. And the same is true in New Brunswick. In the last election, they got three seats in New Brunswick. And again, it was connected to local issues beyond just the environment. Um, and, and they had candidates. I think a couple of them were farmers and, and, and others who were local business people as well, too. And they, they were focusing on the bigger tent. The challenge, I think, for the Greens nationally is, and, and this was Elizabeth's vision. She wanted to run candidates everywhere. Elizabeth. Uh, you know, cut her teeth as a as an activist. How do you school, how do you succeed as an activist 
you get mentions, you get noticed, you're part of the conversation. Outcomes aren't often as important. And I think the Greens were probably okay with that. Maybe Ms. Paul came in and said, hey, we need more than outcomes. I don't understand strategically, for example, why the Greens wouldn't look to run just a slate of 50 candidates. To get official party status in the House of Commons, you need 12 members. So why wouldn't you initially try 12, you know, to get 12 and to build gradually? That wasn't what they did under Elizabeth May. Maybe Anna Mae Paul was trying to go there and people didn't like it. They preferred the noise as opposed to direction. But, you know, they're, they're getting noise. And in the end, Scott, this may also benefit Ms. Paul. There may be people in Toronto Centre who say, you know what, I like this person. I may not like the Greens, but I like the way she fights. I like that she's not afraid to voice issues. I like that she's strong and she's tough. And, of course, Toronto has the most diverse population in the country. So maybe this is also what Ms. Uh, Ms. Paul is trying to do in her pushback, appeal to people who could at least vote for her at the local level because, as Elizabeth May did, they're voting for her first. Green is secondary to them. Uh, is the Green Party seen as an extremist party in the eyes of Canadians? Um, you know, can they, can they learn something from what the provincial uh, leaders are doing? I don't know if they're seen. I think they're not seen as a serious party. I think as you have, yeah. as your questions portrayed, they're kind of seen as a one-trick pony. And that pony had a good ride with Elizabeth, right? She did force discussion on environmental issues. Well, so That's much so, and now all the political parties have a plan of some sort. So there is, you know, there certainly is credit. That credit is is due yeah. to the Greens. But, you know, again, are they in an environmental movement or are they a serious contender as a political party? And do they want to grow up, too? And maybe grow up is a bit uh, pejorative. Do, the, do they want to continue in this role? Again, activists, many of them are about generating noise so someone else makes decisions and keeping a persistency of noise as opposed to assuming government. You can do both, but I, and I, I think that's been their eternal struggle. I, I work with a fellow who, was a, who I worked with in the Conservative Party years ago who went and tried to do some work for the Greens, and he found that that was their struggle, or as he viewed it, it as it was a struggle, that they, you know, they aren't quite content to branch into other issues. Now, that's a decade and a bit ago when, again, the environment wasn't getting the attention that it, uh, at the, that it deserved. But there's lots of lessons in Canada, lots of lessons in Europe about how the Greens can grow to be more if they choose to do so. Um, just because, you know, everyone in a party has the common denominator of, uh, advocating for the environment, does that mean they are on the same, uh, playing field on the, on the same, have the same view with other political issues? Are, are you to assume just because you have an environmental, the same environmental issue with someone else that you're, you're going to have the same political view on all the other issues? Well, apparently not on the Middle East. Um, yeah, yeah I, I mean, look, every party that I know of has tensions around Middle East politics, but every federal party I know of finds a way to manage those tensions. Um, I mean, those tensions are going to live on past this conversation today. They're going to live on past Anna Mae Paul because uh, that, that is the nature of that region going back, you know, hundreds of years. So, uh, uh, so that that can be an undoing factor, as it, it apparently was here. But I, again, I think you create a structure of 
place where you manage conflict. Again, if we've seen anything with anime Paul's journey over the past week, it's the Greens are pretty okay with having broad open conflict. Now, some might say that is a good thing for democracy, but again, I think Canadian voters tend generally to like traditional approaches. They don't mind a little bit of noise, but they want to know that you can, you know, if you can't run your own home, how are you going to run theirs? And I still think that's the way voters will initially look at parties. I think I saw one headline, how can you save the planet when you can't save your party? Um, what about Elizabeth May's role in all of this? I mean, you know, she she was leader for an extended period of time. She's now gone. There's a new leader there. Should she continue to be active? Yes, she's still in the party. Should she continue uh, to be as influential as she is, or should she let the party take over where she left off? I mean, Elizabeth, look, I, I know her a little bit. That's why I'm referring to her as, as Elizabeth. I've known, known her for a little while. I mean, she she was born an activist. She'll die an activist. And what do I mean by that is it's just in her blood to be engaged. I, she, she's not somebody who can rest well and step, you know, step away from it all. I mean, she's... I, and there's no proof that she has played any role in the destabilization here. I, I gather she agreed with uh, the MP who left about um, uh, about the way she had been treated, and there are probably loyalists of Elizabeth, and she certainly has sway. It'd be interesting to see if she were going to, uh, you know, she may be the one who can come out and publicly say, you guys need to get this together, but... Yeah, she's 67 years of age. I don't, and that's not old, but I don't know if she wants to do another campaign as leader. Because if, if Anime Paul gets punted, well, where are they going to go? They're going to go hmm. to Elizabeth May. It, it would make sense to me that they would. She is the best known green in the country. Does she want that? I don't know. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.